I don't know about you, but I love stories or movies that are multi-layered, that are loaded with symbols. You know, whether it's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, we watched the latest one last night as a family, or Lord of the Rings, or even some that are maybe less religious, more modern stories, The Matrix. Yeah, definitely cheesy at points, but, you know, it's interesting. One of those head-scratcher kind of movies, or maybe you've seen a newer movie called Inception, these kind of movies have layers to them. You know, they have a lot of questions. And sometimes non-Christians think that the Bible isn't very layered. They think it's pretty silly, that it's pretty simple, that it simply records the beliefs and stories of some simple people from long ago. But the more I study the Bible, which hasn't been that long. It's been my full-time job, though, for almost 20 years. You probably wouldn't guess that, right? Because you think I look 21 or something. Yeah. So I started at one. Yeah, no. The more I study the Bible, the more I see not simplicity, at least not in a bad way, but layers of profundity. The more I see that though it has about 40 human authors over Over thousands of years, it has a single divine author as well. I can't find another explanation for its connections, for the implications. Yes, it's 66 books, but it really is one book. Literally hundreds of rich, deep, layered connections and symbols and implications and And if you don't see those, if you don't believe that they're there, I understand. It's like trying to explain a rich, multi-layered story to someone who hasn't seen it. So if you ask me, you said Inception, right? What's that movie about? I could say, it's about dreams. I didn't ruin anything for you there, did I? It's just about dreams, and that's partly true. But oh my goodness, is it more complex than that? So take just even one story of your life or a little slice of a story of your life, a compartment of your life, and and just ask yourself, what's happening there? What's going on? How many layers are there? Maybe there are layers to you coming to church today. Maybe there were a lot of conversations that went into that. Maybe there's some history there. Maybe there's some, some feelings. How many layers are there just to your job? Or maybe the parenting of each of your kids. There are these backstories, right? There's history. There are tensions that are unique in your family or at your job. There are unspoken dynamics. Well, my point is just really this. We all know about layers to stories. And the Bible is like that, but infinitely more so if it's God's word, if it's divine. So from one perspective... In one layer, Matthew 27 simply records the history of Jesus' death. It just tells us who said what and how he died. But oh, so much more is going on underneath the service. Uh, I'm sorry, underneath the surface. At our Good Friday service, many of you were there, we talked about 20 things in Matthew 26 and 27 that even seem odd, strange on the surface. But each of them is necessary and profound. 
wonderful when you scratch a little bit deeper. At first they seem strange, but you keep looking, keep thinking, and the more God reveals himself to our hearts and our minds, the more we see the glorious intricacies of his saving plan from a wonderful story, storytelling God. Our God likes stories. He tells good stories, and they're true stories. So today I want to focus in on three of the 20 oddities, if you read our Friday night service that we talked about there. I want to focus in on just three of those, go a little bit deeper, and then I want to focus even deeper on just one of those three. Matthew 27, we'll start by just reading four verses here. Verse 51. In verse 50, Jesus has just cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He just died. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Fallen asleep means they died. They died and they were raised. And coming out of the tomb, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Well, you'll notice a sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, if that helps you follow along. And you can see we've got two sections. The first, three symbolic miracles, which happened just as Jesus died. We read them. The first, the temple curtain was torn. The temple curtain was torn was torn. Verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is Old Testament stuff. This is Jewish history stuff. This curtain separated the holy of holies, sort of the inner sanctum of the temple, from the rest of the temple. The temple had kind of had three layers, three inner circles, you could say. And this is the innermost circle of the temple. There's a curtain blocking the entrance to it, And it's a symbol of a barrier between God and man. Though this is the place for his worship, there's an inherent symbol. You can't come in here. That's where God is. And only one man, the high priest, only once a year could go into the holy of holies. He could move that curtain aside and walk in to that inner sanctum of God's dwelling place. And and he could only go in, really, after dozens of purification rituals. The whole message said you cannot draw near. This curtain, specifically, was a massive fabric. It was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. Ancient rabbinic literature, so about the time of some parts of the Bible, but, but not in the Bible, Some of this ancient literature says that the woven fabric of this curtain was as thick as a man's hand is wide. It's not that wide. Remember, we said it was 30 feet wide. It's that thick. Some estimate that it may have weighed as much as four to six tons and taken up to 300 men to put it in place. So what does it mean that this kind of curtain was miraculously, immediately, and completely from top to bottom torn in two. Well, it means 
First, that God is doing away with the temple. In his new epic of redemptive history, he's doing away with the temple, and Jesus is now the temple. Jesus has said this. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. John, as he records, that tells us. He was referring to his body, the temple. It's a comment about the resurrections to come. They're going to destroy his temple, and he'll raise it up on the third day. He even promised that eventually there would be a destruction of that literal physical temple in Jerusalem. And in A.D. 70, it came to pass. Hasn't been rebuilt, rebuilt since. So this curtain being torn in two symbolizes what's coming. God is doing away with the temple and the whole sacrificial system in this new era of his plan. But even more so, the temple curtain torn in two means that now Christ has opened the way to God's presence. The message is no longer, you can't come in, you can't even peek. But now come, come in. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews unpacks this whole thing in much greater detail. Let me show you three different passages in Hebrews that comment on what's going on here in Matthew 27 with this this curtain being torn from top to bottom. The first passage is Hebrews 6, verse 19, where it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What great language. I want that, right? You want that. A sure, steadfast anchor for my soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Holy of holies. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our hope resides beyond the curtain, you could say. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11... It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest, he's the high priest, the high high priest, the ultimate high priest. He appeared as a high priest of good things to come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Now, that's a little complicated. That's referring to the tabernacle, the the early version of the temple. All right, temple is tabernacle 2.0. So there's this temporary tent. They travel around in the wilderness, and there's a holy of holies in that too. And then eventually there's a permanent building in Jerusalem and there's a holy of holies in that. So it's saying that Jesus went into a more perfect tent or temple. One not made with hands, not one in Jerusalem or traveling about in the wilderness. One not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but means of his own blood. And by doing this, he secured eternal redemption for us. Get this, he's both the priest and he's the sacrifice. He's such a gracious priest, he himself is the sacrifice. And he didn't need a multi-step purification process to have the right to go into the holy of holies he's already pure and he didn't just go into holy of holies made with hands he went into god's very dwelling place heaven itself so now hebrews 10 verse 19 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy of holies, what, we have confidence? The priest couldn't do this whenever he wanted. The priest had to do purification. We have confidence to enter the holy places? Yes, by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. What? Why did it say through his flesh? The symbolism's getting rich here. The curtain was torn, right? To make access. Well, that doesn't itself do anything. A temple being torn in Jerusalem, I mean, a, a curtain in a temple being torn in Jerusalem doesn't necessarily change much. But Jesus' body was a torn veil for us. And now through the, his tearing, his death, his suffering, his punishment, through the, his tearing, we can now go in to the holy place. He's a living veil, you could say. So we now have a great high priest over the house of God. And so let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. Draw near to that temple, to that holy of holies through Jesus with great confidence. The temple curtain was torn. What a beautiful symbolic miracle just as Jesus died. Secondly, we see the earth was torn open. Verse 51 The earth shook and the rocks were split. And when it says the rocks were split, you can't tell in the ESV, the translation I'm reading, but it's the same Greek word that was used of the curtain. The curtain was torn apart and rocks were torn apart. In other words, an earthquake. Now there are a few ways to understand an earthquake happening just as Jesus dies. One option is that maybe the disciples made it up. Maybe this book is made up. We said at our Good Friday service just two days ago, we listed 20 strange things in Matthew 26 and 27. And one of our conclusions was, if you were making this up, trying to promote a made-up religion for a dead guy, you wouldn't put almost any of this in here. These weird things in there? You wouldn't put him in if it was made up. Besides Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, but he wrote about an earthquake in AD 30 that damaged the temple and ripped the curtain. I don't think the disciples made this up. Or you say, well, maybe it's just coincidence, though. It's just coincidence. And the sky went dark at the same time. And this curtain. 60 feet up, ripped from top to bottom. And it happened just as Jesus died. And it's just coincidence? I don't think so. I think it might be more likely that the miraculous took place than that we, that we would stack coincidences one upon another. Or maybe you would say, this thing of a, an earthquake happening just as Jesus died, that's a message from God. This is no ordinary man, and this is no ordinary death. It'd be like if someone said, went home tomorrow and said, that's it, I'm giving up on God. And just as they said that, an earthquake happened, and they sh- their whole house shook. You know, they might say, I think he heard me. And I think he's really there, and I think I should shut up now. 
right? Well, maybe that's what's happening is this earthquake sets off just as Jesus dies. Or maybe this earthquake in Matthew 27 goes even deeper than that. It's not just a message that what's happening is no ordinary man and no ordinary death. Maybe this earthquake is actually fulfilling a promise of the Old Testament. The book of Haggai. He's a prophet writing about 500 years before Christ's birth. And he talks about earthquakes. Haggai 2, verse 6. God says to the prophet there, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And then in verse 21 of Haggai chapter 2, God says there, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. It pops up a few times, a few other times in the prophets. God promising a day coming where he's going to do something big. It's going to be global in its implications. I don't think we should worry about the fact that Haggai's talking about what looks like a universal earthquake, right? A global earthquake, and we don't get that impression necessarily from Matthew 27. It could be a localized earthquake there. That's not the point. Haggai isn't being hyper-literal here as he records these words from God. He's letting us know that In the earthquake, in this picture of an earthquake, God is going to do global things. This thing he's about to do is earth-shattering. It's rock-splitting. The shaking of earth is a symbol for a time coming when things get flipped over, when they get turned around, like we sing at Christmas time. You know the words to Handel's Messiah? Quoting Isaiah 40, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be laid down, uneven grounds become level, rough places plain. That's earthquake language. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. One more, Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, verse 25, the writer of Hebrews there says, See that you don't refuse him who's speaking, who's speaking the gospel, who's inviting. Don't ignore him. Then he goes back to Mount Sinai and Moses. He said, for if they, those people back there, didn't escape when they refused his warning from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, at Sinai, Moses' day, a voice shook the earth. But now, and here he quotes Haggai too, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us that in the coming of Christ, there's a shaking of heaven and earth. So Matthew 28, verse 2, if you're still in Matthew 27, you can just look over. Just a few verses later, here Jesus is going to have his own resurrection And as the angel rolls the stone away from the tomb, there is a great earthquake. No surprise, the book of Revelation at least five times mentions that in the consummation of God's plan, at the end of days, there will be a great earthquake. 
The point is just this, that the earthquake in Matthew 27 isn't just sort of a single layered sign that Jesus is no ordinary man and this is no ordinary death. It's a symbol that the end has begun, that God is now bringing about this promised age. The revolution is starting. I'm about to shake heaven and earth. Yes, it's a real, literal, physical earthquake that's actually happening here in Jerusalem as Jesus breathes his last, and yet it's so richly loaded with symbolism and the fulfillment of prophecies from hundreds of years before. Now, God has yet to fully shake heaven and earth, but that's coming. Coming someday, but it's already started. And it was no mere tremor When Jesus died upon the cross, the longed-for, earth-shattering day has already started to come. Third, we see many graves were torn open. Verses 52 and 53, they're tough verses. Just notice this before we even read them. The temple curtain is torn, the rocks are torn open, and now many graves were torn open. All three use rather violent language, tearing And yet they give us something so glorious and hopeful if we'll look long enough. Verse 52 and 53, it says the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who had died earlier, many years perhaps, they were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this is a strange part of the crucifixion story. It's only here in Matthew. It's not in Mark, Luke, or John. And you should know, if you're not a Christian, this is a strange part of our Bible even for Christians. Christians get to this and go, what? Is that really in there? And I'll have to confess something. I'm preaching this passage this morning in part because a few weeks ago I was reading through these chapters in Matthew and trying to figure out what to preach on at at Good Friday and Easter. And and I came to these two verses, verse 52 and 53, about many bodies being raised just as Jesus died. And I thought, yeah, not, not doing that. What do you say to that? How do you teach? I don't know what that's about. So I started looking elsewhere and I kept coming back to it. It kept bugging me. How come I don't know anything about this? How come I want to jump it, you know, jump over it and keep going? So I kept looking and kept thinking and doing some reading here and there. And boy, I started to see layers, started to see it come alive. And I'm excited about it and and want you to be as well. It's, It's a strange passage, but it's a rich passage. So let's camp out on this. Why this seemingly strange group resurrection? The first thing we have to talk about regarding this strange group resurrection is that there are a lot of unanswerable questions. There's a lot this doesn't say. It doesn't say who they presented themselves to, who saw them. It doesn't say how public their appearances were. It doesn't say how well-known this was around town, that this, this sort of thing had happened. We don't know exactly who these people are. We just know that they're pre-Jesus saints, right? 
Old Testament saints is what we sometimes call them. They're pre-Jesus saints who had died, and that's all we're told. What happened? I think it is literal. I think, I think this is a resurrection. And you say, that's freaky. I mean, I've seen movies where dead people come back to life, and they don't look so good, right? Are we talking zombies here? And the text doesn't say exactly what they looked like or how they were transformed or what kind of bodies they had. I think it is safe to assume, though, this is not a freaky thing. This is a good thing. Whatever their bodies looked like, they got fixed up somehow. So they didn't come out of these tombs naked and nasty and decayed. They came out in some form of glorious, either fixed, normal human bodies like Lazarus's. Talk about him in just a minute. Or maybe glorified bodies like Christ's. But that's another one of those questions. It is an answer. We don't know what kind of body they have. We don't know whether they have to die again or whether God just would take them up someday, maybe at the ascension of Christ. Scripture doesn't give us answers to these questions, which may mean that they're not the right questions to be asking. There's some better questions. There's some more important questions. Those are the ones that come to mind because of our curiosity, but I think the biggest and most important questions are answerable. And those biggest, most important questions are, why did this happen and what does it mean? So like so many things in the Bible, it seems strange at first, but there are many layers, and through those layers we can eventually see glory and beauty and power and salvation and hope. So let's start with one layer in the Old Testament. The second thing in your notes there, there were resurrection hints in the Old Testament. Yeah, there are a lot of unanswerable questions regarding this strange group resurrection, but there were some resurrection hints in the Old Testament that might be relevant. Places where God had promised his people that one day, remember, so much the Old Testament's about one day, it's coming, this is coming, that's coming. One day, he'll bring about such a reviving work in his people that it'd be like a resurrection. So Ezekiel 37, verse 12, God says, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Now, In Ezekiel's day, it wouldn't be wrong for for God's people to think that this promise simply meant God's going to revive his people. He's going to restore them as as a nation. It's going to be like a practical resurrection. But they wouldn't have thought perhaps that he was really talking about resurrection. But there are layers. So on the one hand, that's all Ezekiel was saying. Sure. Sure. God's going to revive his people. He'll bring them back to the land. This was written just when they're in the midst of captivity. On another level, resurrection's a major theme, and it gets bigger. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, God promises there, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That one doesn't sound just like a national revival, does it? Doesn't sound like just restoration, does it? Sounds a little bit more like resurrection. 
So there were these resurrection hints in the Old Testament. Tuck those away. Then, third, in your notes, there was a resurrection hint in Jesus' own ministry. John 11, I referred to it already. It's the story of Lazarus and his resurrection. Jesus did all kinds of miracles while he walked this earth. But one of them was unique. It was the resurrection of Lazarus. So listen to John chapter 11. The story, we'll just take some sample verses from it here to see what's going on. In John 11 verse 14, Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, for Lazarus' family's sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I wasn't there before he died to just restore him or heal him or fix him. I'm glad he died so that you may believe. So in verse 39, Jesus tells the people, take away the stone where he's buried. Verse 43, it says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And right in the middle of all this, these words are there. It was, there were the words behind us this morning, in front of you, behind me in the middle screen that we were hopefully looking at as we sang a little bit. John 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he'll live. In other words, the raising of Lazarus was a picture, a snapshot of why Jesus came and what, by his grace, he offers. He's not just saying, I'm going to be raised. He's not just saying, Lazarus, it wasn't your time. Someone made a mistake up in accounting. And I'll fix it, don't worry, you're here a little bit longer. He doesn't just say he gives resurrection occasionally. He says, I am the resurrection. I am life. And even if you die... My resurrection power is greater than death. Tuck that away. It's another layer. Fourth, Jesus' death and resurrection change everything. That's the thing upon which all of this pivots. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, verse 17, said, If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless, futile. You're still in your sins. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then what was the cross all about? And if the cross wasn't about anything, didn't do anything on a spiritual, cosmic, eternal level in paying for sins, then we still got to pay for our own sins. Those who have died, fallen asleep, they just perished. That's it. They just died. That's it. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a joke. If we've lived our lives for this, believing it, encouraging it in others, we find out it's not true. It's not just that, well, you believed a lie, but at least you lived a good life. Paul says, we're pitiable fools. So the cross and the resurrection go together in Scripture and Though they're separated by a Saturday, they're linked together logically and theologically, so you you really can't have one without the other. These three things that are torn open in Matthew 27, temple and earth and graves, they don't mean anything if the resurrection isn't coming. But because the resurrection is coming, 
because inevitably Christ is going to be raised, then there are these hints of hope right smack in the middle of Dark Friday. Right? He just died. The sky is dark. Earthquake looks bad. Unless it's actually a symbol of heaven and earth coming. This new age dawning. God saving. Resurrecting. And there being a new way to approach him. A torn curtain symbolizing access to his very presence. What huge hints of hope, at least underneath the surface, right there in the middle of such a dark Friday. Fifth, a spiritual resurrection is what we need in order to see and believe. Hopefully you're seeing this resurrection theme is everywhere. It isn't just that Jesus had to die because, well, he's God and you can't stay dead if you're God and you're eternal. Or it's not just that Jesus was raised to confirm to all the world that what he said was true and that the cross actually worked. It provides salvation. Those things are both true, but there's something more going on here, right? And part of what's going on is that in order for us to receive this message and believe it for it to be ours, there needs to be a spiritual resurrection that takes place in our hearts. So Ephesians 2 Verse 4 says, God being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. Why would you add those words? Don't they seem superfluous? Together with Christ? He was raised. Our resurrection rests on his. He made us alive together with him. Oh, by grace you've been saved. And he has raised us up with him. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again. He has to open our eyes to see the layers. To see that it's not simple and silly. It's glorious, beautiful, powerful, and saving. And lastly, one day we will all be raised. All of us. So listen to John chapter 5, a chunk where Jesus talks about the resurrection. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about resurrection hearts made alive so that we can get the gospel, receive the gospel, embrace it as our own? Is he talking about these people in Matthew 27 who will literally come out of their graves? Is he talking about the end of the age when there'll be a resurrection and those who are Christ's will go to him and the rest will go to judgment? 
The answer is yes and amen, all of them. In other words, the resurrection theme is everywhere. Resurrection seems strange to us. It seems scary to us, right? To believe that these two verses are in our Bibles and are true, really happened, is a little bit scary. But you know why they're here? Because resurrection is what's needed. That's how bad things are. We don't need adjustment. We don't need fixing, tinkering, improvement. We don't need realignment. And we don't even need revival. We need resurrection. Sin has so broken us, the solution is nothing less than the death and resurrection of Christ applied to us through a spiritual resurrection by the Holy Spirit. This is the defeat of death and the promise of life. In Christ now, death is dead. So even if we die, we live. Sin is the problem. Sin results in death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to die in our place, to take the damnation that we deserve and to give the life that we could never earn. He lives that we might live. So here's a wonderful gospel hope passage in Hebrews 2. In verse 14, it says, Jesus partook of flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He destroyed death and the devil. And hence, those who've received this, those who know it, they've been delivered. Those who, through fear of death, have been subject to slavery all their lives. We're born afraid of death. Jesus came to address that. Jesus came to free us from death, eternal death, so that death has lost its sting, as we sang earlier. Now there can be freedom even in the face of death. God tore open the temple, showing us that there's now access to God through a torn veil, the torn veil of Christ himself. God tore open the earth itself, a symbol that he had come down and a new day had dawned and an earth-shattering revolution had begun in the simplistic, seemingly silly story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And just to let us know what was on the horizon, God tore open a few graves that day just to give us a hint of the life-giving resurrection hope that's in Christ. Let me close with a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the greatest preacher of the 20th century. He said, if the Lord Jesus Christ had not literally risen physically from the grave, we could never be certain that he'd ever really finished the work. If he has died for our sins, we must not only be certain that he has died, but that he has finished dying. And that there's no longer death. When God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, I'm satisfied in him. I'm satisfied in the work that he's done. He has done everything. He has fulfilled every demand. Not only that, 
the resurrection proved that he has conquered every enemy that was opposed to him, to God and to us. He's not only satisfied the law and conquered death and the grave, he's vanquished the devil in all his forces and hell in all the principalities and powers of evil. He has triumphed over them all and he proves it in the resurrection. The devil cannot hold him. Death and hell cannot hold him. He's mastered them all. He has emerged on the other side. He is the son of God and he has completed the work which the father had sent him to do. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because it's true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you for the glorious, powerful, intricately layered, sometimes mysterious work and wonder that we have in Christ.